Hello, and welcome to At the Back of Your Mind, the Inspire the Mind podcast that brings you the science on mental health with a no-nonsense attitude. I'm one of your hosts, Juliette, together with my scientist friends, Carolina and Mariam. We're often joined by fabulous guests, so grab a cup of tea and let's dive into what exactly is at the back of your mind today. Today, this is an episode with my co-host Carolina and myself. Hello. Mariam can't be present, but as always, she's there in spirit. So today we're talking about childhood trauma, genetics, the environment, and actually it kind of boils down to nature or nurture, the role of epigenetics in childhood trauma and the development of adverse health outcomes later in life. Today we have with us a very special guest, Charlotte Cecil, who is an Associate Professor in Biological Psychopathology at Erasmus Medical Center and the Director of the In-Depth Lab, which aims to better understand how genetic and environmental influences together shape children's development and long-term health. So essentially, she works on the biological approach to childhood trauma, the environment and genetic factors. Charlotte, through this work, wants to understand how early life experiences get under the skin and influence children's biology in a way that increases the risk for developing psychiatric problems later in life. If you work in the field of mental health like us, it's a very well-replicated finding that childhood trauma leads to basically increased chances of developing mental health issues later in life. And it's not super specific. It can increase your risks of developing depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, you name it, right? Absolutely. In fact, there are many, many studies. For example, I could find a study as early as 1996 and many other more recent studies that found that early childhood exposure to trauma is associated with a significant risk of developing psychopathology, so uh, mental illness essentially in adulthood, including but not limited to depression and generalized anxiety disorder, like we said, but also PTSD Mm -hmm. and panic disorders. And actually, this seems to affect differently boys and girls, and girls seem to be disproportionately affected. But you also have other things like the environment around them. So things like socioeconomic status, according to a paper by Jones Mason from 2016, uh, has been shown to interact with epigenetic processes and modulate attachment levels, which are related to unresolved loss or grief. And then you have other things like if you look really at uh, childhood maltreatment, you have to think about how old was the child when was this maltreatment uh, experienced uh, right. and what kind of, of maltreatment was it or what kind of abuse was it physical was it sexual was it emotional was it neglect and chronicity which means how long did this happen for was this a one-off event was this happening yeah. every day or every week for from months or years yeah. i think like what you know the, the findings you presented really i think depicts the field <laughs> as it has been, which is that people, you know, so that if you have childhood trauma, you're more likely to develop mental health issues or physical health issues later in life. And then they started asking how. And part of that answer is that it could also be down to, you know, environment, socioeconomic status, things like that. Mm -hmm. But they're also wondering how that impacts people biologically. And that's when you start hearing about concepts like genetics, epigenetics, and because Absolutely. we are not we are not experts in epigenetics 
we went to find the best expert we could find. Absolutely. Who is Charlotte or Shah, who, who we're going to be talking to later down uh, in this episode. But before we get into it, um, I wanted to tell you about this other really fascinating paper that I found. It was published in 2005 by Red or Reed. Apologies, author. Please write to me if this is not how you say your name. And it's about how symptoms that are indicative of psychosis and schizophrenia, which are quite um, severe forms of mental illness, and they have quite a chronic component to them, or they can have, uh, especially when it, when it comes to schizophrenia, and in particular hallucinations that are present in psychosis and schizophrenia, are strongly related to childhood abuse and neglect and other mental health uh, problems. And actually, large-scale population studies have shown that the relationship is a causal one, so not just association between childhood trauma and hallucinations, but also there's a dose effect. So the biggest the trauma or the most severe the trauma, perhaps the more, more severe the symptoms are, which is something huge when you think about it. Um, thinking about how children can and should be protected from these big traumatic events or from uh, traumatic environments. Right, yeah. I mean, lots of literature on the topic, to be honest, right? Childhood trauma is um, unfortunately... As with all things in science, like it involves a lot of components, mm -hmm. such as, you know, time chronicity. Does it repeat? What do we take into account? How do we measure it? When do we measure it? And, you know, what should we consider mm -hmm. a, a mental health issue or not? Right. As we discussed, it doesn't need to be like full blown schizophrenia. Carolina, was there anything else you wanted to like add to this? Well, Actually, I have another paper that I want to tell you about, and I promise this is the last one before our listeners fall asleep with all of these papers. Uh, but it, this is a very recent paper, and it actually touches upon what you were just saying. We're not just talking about severe mental illness. When, when you think of things like um, depression and anxiety in, in adults, a recent study, so a 2021 study by Kuzminskate, Apologies, write to me if you are the author and you feel offended by the way I said your name. So um, childhood trauma was associated with a higher prevalence of depressive and anxiety disorders with increased comorbidity and chronicity. So childhood trauma was actually linked to maladaptive personality characteristics and cognitions, stress systems dysregulations, advanced biological aging, poorer lifestyle, uh, physical health decline and brain alterations. So when we talk about childhood trauma and mental illness, we can't forget about all the somatic and comorbidities that come associated with them. And it actually can happen independently of developing or not a mental health condition later in life. There's all these physical health issues that are associated with childhood trauma. But really the core of what we want to discuss today is epigenetics. And there's no one better to tell us about it than Charlotte. Welcome Charlotte, or Sha, for her friends. We'll call her Sha from now on. Uh, welcome to At the Back of Your Mind. Hi everyone, thanks so much for having me uh, on the podcast. We have some questions for you today, and we hope that you can help us and our listeners understand a bit more about epigenetics and uh, the role of childhood trauma on mental health later in life. My first question for you is, 
What would constitute childhood trauma? I think people would associate physical or sexual abuse or be displaced by war or natural disaster as traumatic. But what else is there that in your research has come up as childhood trauma? Yeah, the question of childhood trauma is a complex one. I think that generally uh, most of the research has focused indeed on childhood maltreatment because we do know that it's one of the most severe and adverse forms of negative environments that children can be raised or grow up into. But the thing is, there's been a lot of focus on specific types of maltreatment, such as physical abuse and sexual abuse. And of course, these are very severe forms of maltreatment, but there's also to other ones, such as exposure to neglect, so perhaps having children not having their basic uh, needs met, whether those be food or medical attention or comfort in the case of emotional neglect. And these are also very harmful. Originally, it's been a little bit under-recognized, but there's more and more awareness that also emotional abuse is very, very prevalent, and it can be very, very harmful, and it actually uh, lies at the core of childhood maltreatment. It often happens uh, at the same time as other forms, so it needs to receive a little bit more attention also in the research. So generally, I think most of the work has focused on childhood maltreatment, but we see that, of course, uh, traumatic events can happen outside of the family as well. So there's been a, quite a bit of research on things such as negative life events, having a loss, for example, but also exposure to violence in the community or at schools in the form of bullying. So these are all sort of events that you might consider potentially traumatic and definitely adverse childhood exposures. It is a little bit of a complex issue because indeed it's a gray zone, right? What do you define as traumatic? What do you not define as traumatic? How early do you start looking? Because there's been uh, research in childhood, but of course, there's also a lot of research on prenatal stressors and the fact that environmental influences already in utero might have an impact, whether positive or negative, on fetal development, and that could have uh, long-term consequences. And there's also the difference of objectively assessing events that you might think of as adverse and subjectively seeing how much impact they actually might have on an individual, because different individuals might perceive differently the same event. So these are all complexities of uh, looking at childhood trauma and adversity. But what I can say is that generally what we find, no matter how we really look at it, whether it's very severe exposures or broader adverse childhood experiences, the more you have, the higher the risk of developing not just mental, but also physical health problems uh, later in life. So we do know that there's a cumulative effect of adverse experiences. And then on top of that, there's also perhaps more subtle differences depending on the type or the timing of the exposure or the severity or the chronicity. So, And those are a little bit harder to measure accurately, but of course they do play a role as well. So actually it's not just down to the type of traumatic event. And in fact, emotional neglect seems to be a big risk factor to develop not only mental, but also physical health issues later in life. But there's also the subjective component that what us as researchers might consider a traumatic or non-traumatic event really depends on the person's perspective and perception of what happened to them. So it sounds quite a complex field. It is such an interesting field because, you know, there's so many factors that you need to like take into account to really understand what's going on. But one thing that's really come out of research over the past years, maybe decades, is that there is a biological effect of childhood trauma. So is that regardless of the subtype? And what would you say are like the biggest biological consequences of childhood trauma? Yes, I think um, another complex topic, <laughs> but uh, I think it all, it all boils down to 
there's been a huge interest in trying to understand how it is possible that events that can happen earlier in life, childhood trauma being one of them, but there's, you know, you could take it even broader, but let's stick to childhood trauma. So we know that events that can happen very early in life can have a very long-term impact or increased risk for certain outcomes, even decades after that exposure has occurred, which means that there's some sort of legacy. And how does that legacy manifest? What does it do to? And there's multiple potential explanation. One of them is that part of it might not be biological. Part of it might be the fact that we know, you know, unfortunately, individuals who might be exposed to a lot of trauma early in life tend to have a higher risk of potentially being exposed to other negative environments later in life. And so part of that effect on health might be due to the fact that they also get more exposed to re-victimization or negative environments at later stages. We also know that exposure to trauma and stress early in life is linked to certain negative health behaviors, such as changes in diet or higher risk of substance abuse to perhaps deal with the traumatic events that in turn, however, increases risk for poor health outcomes. So these are more non-biological routes. However, uh, more and more research yeah. supports the fact that they might also be a more direct biological pathway through which these early exposures might be encoded and shape a little bit children's development, health and behavior in later life due to biological adaptations that might be very helpful in early life when one is exposed to traumatic events, but not so helpful later in life when trying to actually cope out of that environment. If I got this correctly, you were telling us how perhaps being in a household that where there's a lot of emotional neglect also means that that child is more likely to be in, let's say, a lower socioeconomic household or to live in a place with high air pollution or to go to a school that is underfunded. Are these the other social determinants that are present in the surroundings that might interplay with trauma and might then lead to, let's say, for example, lower academic achievement would lead to instability in terms of employment, but also it can lead to increases in the HPA axis, so cortisol production, which might have uh, influence in developing physical health diseases later in life. Did I get this correct? <laughs> yes. So basically, that's one of the things is different types of adversity are not independent from one another. Of course, childhood trauma and childhood maltreatment can occur at all different spectrums of society and of socioeconomic status. However, what we do see is typically in the population, you might have a group of the population that is disproportionately affected by early adverse events, whether within the family, but then also within the broader neighborhood and community. So different stressors tend to correlate and cumulatively impact health. And part of that might operate through biological mechanisms. So what has been found is, for example, there seems to be some shared, but also some unique biological alterations that occur in the exposure to abuse versus neglect. So we know that childhood abuse and childhood neglect tend to co-occur. So usually, unfortunately, children who are exposed to abuse tend to also be exposed to more neglect. Not always, but they do tend to co-occur and both negatively impact their development. However, there are also some more unique adaptations that might occur as a result of these. And that makes sense if you think about what these exposures actually are. So in the case of abuse, you're really talking about threat 
You're talking about a child being exposed to um, very high levels of a threatening environment. And there might be biological adaptations such as hypervigilance. And this is what has been found both at the level of the HPA axis or the brain development. In theory, these are positive adaptations. They're really trying to make children more able to cope in a high threat environment. Whereas with neglect, what you're talking about is the absence of necessary stimuli for healthy development. So there might be different adaptations also that occur to respond to that kind of an environment. And so it is quite complex. Generally, you can think of having a negative effect on development, but the type might indeed have slightly different adaptations uh, at a biological level. And generally, what we find is that there are different types of adaptations that have been identified at different levels of biology. So indeed, there's been a lot of research looking at the HPA, so the way that we deal biologically with stressors, but also there's been a lot of research on inflammation and how adverse early experiences can lead to a sort of pro-inflammatory state or a state of chronic inflammation. And of course, there's been a lot of neuroimaging and neurodevelopmental research looking at changes in brain structure, function, and connectivity that might occur as a result of different types of early life exposures. That was such a comprehensive answer. And I think based on what we were discussing so far, it seems that the environment has a lot to play because the environment is going to make it more likely that if you're exposed to, you know, one of these traumas, you might be more likely to experience another if you're likely to develop a negative health outcome because of childhood trauma. How much would you say is actually down to that environment versus how much is down to your biology, your your genes, right? Because unfortunately, sometimes how much you're impacted biologically by childhood trauma is also down to your genetic makeup. Yes, uh, absolutely. And this is a really, really important point. I think there's been historically a big debate, you know, whether you think of mental health or general health or or whichever outcome you're you're interested in of this debate of the nature-nurture. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it the environment? Is it genetics? And, you know, we've moved really beyond that, at least conceptually. I might note not so much always practically in research, but conceptually, we're very well aware now that you just cannot make that distinction. You actually often cannot even separate very clearly genes and environments because they're so intertwined. And so one thing that is very important to note when you're only focusing on the environment, yes, indeed, you see very strong associations with health outcomes, but they're very messy. So there is these two concepts in mental health and especially developmental psychopathology that are important to note here. One is equifinality and one is multifinality. And what I mean by that is you take one risk factor, say childhood trauma, and what you see is generally it associates with increased risk, not just for one thing, but for many different things, whether it be increased risk for schizophrenia, depression, cardiovascular disease, all sorts of different outcomes. But then you can turn it around and see that, for example, depression is not just related to childhood trauma, but it's also related to all sorts of other environmental factors. So a lot of environmental factors and a lot of health outcomes and no clear one-to-one relationship. So when you only look at the environment, it's not sufficient to explain why a particular individual might develop a particular outcome when exposed to different types of environmental exposures. So in order to understand that, you need to go deeper and you need to incorporate a person's genetics, because indeed we are born with different genetic profiles that make us more at risk or more protected from developing certain conditions and from reacting in different ways to certain environmental stimuli. So you have to look at both genes and the environment. 
And to add complexity, what we're realizing is that the way that genes and environments come together is not static across development or across the lifespan, but actually they can interact in different ways depending of the stage of development, whether it's in prenatal development or in early childhood or in adulthood, that can be very different. So what we need to do is move on from what is currently still a bit of a piecemeal approach, where we're trying to address this complex question of mental health by either looking at genes or the environment or single time points in development. And what we really need is integration. We need to move to a perspective where we're looking at gene environment development interplay well, across the lifespan, ideally, but that is quite challenging from a logistic and computational point of view. I was going to say, it sounds like a big challenge because you've got to understand the environment, which, as we've discussed, can be many, many different things. <laughs> understand what kind of trauma was experienced, how the person experienced it, the genetics, which might be a bit more objectively, you know, measurable, quantifiable, but is a very, you know, complex net of information. All of that together with timing and lifespan, right? Because as we develop, we are biologically different. We're very dynamic. Exactly. A lot of time when people define childhood trauma, it can range from anything until, you know, when you're a toddler up until you're 18, which is, you can't really compare that both biologically, environmentally. Like, And that's why I think me as a researcher, where I moved progressively, yeah into is large-scale population-based birth cohort because I believe I mean they're not perfect they have a lot of challenges right. and they're one tool but for me it's one of the best tools to allow for that sort of integration so just for who might not be familiar with what a, a population-based birth yeah. cohort is these are uh, large-scale studies typically that take a snapshot of the population so I'll give as an example the one I work in, uh, Generation R. Please. Yeah, that, that helps to contextualize a little bit. There are several excellent ones around the world. But the one I work in Rotterdam in the Netherlands is called the Generation R Study. It's followed the lives of nearly 10,000 mothers and their children from the first trimester of pregnancy. And now these kids are 18 years of age. And we've been following the lives of these children and their parents for nearly 20 years now. And what's really important is, of course, you can't measure everything, right? You have to make choices and you can't measure continuously everything. But these children and their families have been repeatedly assessed from pregnancy to adolescence. We have a lot of information about environmental exposures at different time points in development. We, of course, have collected also genetic information. We've collected biological data at multiple levels over time. So it allows you to model these interactions as they unfold across development and ultimately to see who might develop certain health outcomes and if these differences can already be explained by factors that occur very early in life. So I think it's a very um, precious tool that we're starting to leverage more and more for this type of aim. One of the main things to keep in mind is, of course, that in population studies, because these are observational studies, we're not doing any experiments, you know, we're just really observing how people develop. It's very difficult to establish causality or causal effects. We can really only look at associations. But what we're trying to do, at least to find robust associations, is that now it's not good enough anymore to look at just one of these population studies. What we tend to do is work in consortia, international or global consortia, where all these different population studies that might have done it a bit differently, but have data from prenatal life onwards, get together and do studies across different data sets to try to identify at least robust and replicable associations. We might not know for sure 
sure that they're causal, but we know that they're there. And then those can be used by more experimental designs to validate and to test potential causal effects. Right. And that's part of your work on the early cause project. Exactly. Exactly. So this is a great European initiative where we're really dedicated to trying to better understand the impact of early life stress. So here we're talking really about prenatal stress and postnatal stress. Which includes childhood trauma. Exactly. And we're really trying to go beyond the current uh, evidence base to understand causal mechanisms and how those may shape not just mental, but physical health across the lifespan and their comorbidity. Because we know that individuals who experience more mental health problems also tend to experience more physical health problems. And yet the research and and the way our system works is still very much about mind-body distinction. And so they, for example, cardiovascular diseases or cardiometabolic diseases and depression, we know are correlated. We know that they can co-occur and yet they still really are looked at as two independent entities and treated treated separately also in healthcare. But we know that they can co-occur and we know that they share common risk factors such as early life stress and childhood trauma. And yet we've been lacking this sort of life course perspective in really understanding what are the links between factors early in life and outcomes later on. And that's also because of good reasons. It's actually really challenging because what you tend to have is either child studies where you have very good data on early life stress, But of course, children are luckily still quite healthy. So it's difficult to really look at associations with diseases. Whereas in adult studies, you might have these disorders actually developed, but not such good data on early life stressors because you have to rely on the individuals reporting their experience of early life stress. And of course, things like very early childhood and prenatal stress, they won't be aware of that most likely. So it's difficult to piece these things together. And that's what the aim of early cause has really been to bridge together human data sets from prenatal life to old age that have this information that we can piece together, but also move one step beyond observational studies to inform experimental studies, cellular models, animal models, and also use machine learning and and advanced tool to integrate all of these masses of information into a coherent model. Right. Because I think at the end of the day, right, the question of scientists is always how, and even if you have, you know, an association in your observational study, you can't test it in an experimental setup at a human level because you can't tell people, oh, you know, these children will have childhood trauma, these children will not, and then we'll see the difference. That's completely unethical. So that's why we have preclinical studies where we look maybe at cells and how they work. And actually, part of your work, one of the hows, one of the potential mechanisms that you're looking at is epigenetics, which is, I would say in science, maybe the epitome of, you know, the interactions between your gene and the environment. Can you maybe explain that in super simple terms? What are are we even talking about when we talk about epigenetics? Absolutely. So epigenetics indeed is a way to really at a molecular level think about how genes and environments come together. So as I mentioned, you know, there's been a lot of questions. We know that both genes and the environment. <laughs> so many questions. Yeah, we know that they, they're both important. Uh, we know, for example, with um, uh, mental illnesses that most of them show at least moderate heritability, but are also linked to all these different environmental risk factors, right? So we know both are important. We know they come together. We know they interact statistically. We can see that. But how does this happen at a molecular level? So how does your environment get under the skin, so to speak, and meet your genome to make that interaction possible? And there's been increasing interest in epigenetics as that potential molecular system that might explain how genes and environments come together. So the definition of epigenetics, it's actually an umbrella term. It means there are multiple molecular mechanisms that come under this umbrella term 
form of epigenetics. But basically, you can think of it as an additional layer of information on top of your DNA. So, you know, you have your DNA and your DNA sequence, and that's static. It should be the same pretty much across your life when you're born with it. It's there Mm -hmm. and it might give you propensities. It might make you more or less likely to develop certain things or react in different ways, but it's static. However, what we've seen is that there's an additional layer of information on top of the genome. And that's literally the meaning of epigenome on top of the genome that regulates dynamically how this DNA sequence is actually uh, activated or used, um, both in different parts of your body and at different stages of your life. So I think one of the best examples maybe for this is looking at cell type. So we know that every cell in your body has the same DNA sequence. It has the same same genetic genetic information, information, same recipe book for life, right? So you can think of a recipe book as your DNA and different chapters being different genes that give you the recipe for different proteins or different things in your body, right? And that's there. Those letters are are sort of fixed. However, which of those recipes you read, which genes are activated can actually vary. So we know that all the cells in your body have the same DNA. However, we know that we have over 200 different types of cells, right? And a brain cell looks and acts very differently from a liver cell, for example. So how is that possible when they actually have access to the same genetic information? That's because they might be reading different recipes. They might be activating different genes. A neuron might only activate genes that are important for its function, and those might be quite different from the genes that are activated in a liver cell, and that's thanks to epigenetics. So these are modifications of the genome that sort of switch genes on and off in different cells and also different times of your life. So you can also think, for example, to think about that example of the lifetime, you can think of testosterone production in man. The genes that help make up testosterone are going to be there across a person's life, but the levels of testosterones that are going to be produced are going to be very different different in a two-year-old or 15-year-old or a 90-year-old, you know what I mean? And so, and that's because of dynamic changes in gene activity that are thanks to epigenetic mechanisms as well. So the main one that we've been focusing on in humans is called DNA methylation. As I mentioned, there's several different types, but this one is the one that's just a little bit easier to measure in the lab. It's a little more stable to quantify. And so most studies have really focused on this particular type. And what that is, very briefly, it's the addition of methyl molecules to specific DNA base pairs. Um, And so what happens is that you might have a gene, and depending on how many of these methyl molecules stick to the gene, that creates sort of like a physical barrier or like a chemical blanket around the gene. That means that transcription factors that usually come and read the information are no longer able to do that because basically this methylation is blocking access to the information within the gene. So the sequence is still the same. It's just not accessible anymore. Your genes are, so to speak, switched on and off through epigenetic changes. And probably the best example of an environmental effect on epigenetics, which we know it's replicated, it's extremely, it's an extremely robust finding, is tobacco smoking. So we know that either direct smoking, but also in utero exposure to smoke is associated with very strong changes in DNA methylation, which is this type of epigenetic mechanism that we look at, to the extent where algorithms have been developed that can 
predict very accurately, actually, if an individual is, for example, an active smoker or a past smoker or a never smoker, just based on their DNA methylation patterns from blood, for example. So without even asking whether that exposure has occurred, you can actually see it at the level of the epigenome because it's encoded and has a very strong effect, which in turn might influence the expression of genes and later disease risk. What studies have shown is that some of these alterations are reversible, right? So that's one important message here. (laughs) Upon uh, smoking cessation or being no longer exposed to smoke, uh, a lot of these alterations seem to normalize, not all of them, but a lot of them. So that's one thing to remember. And the other thing that is really important to remember when we talk about early life exposures is that these are, again, not deterministic, right? So we're really talking about something that might increase or decrease your chance of developing a health outcome. And no single factor is generally sufficient to explain if a health outcome occurs. It's really the interaction, not just of environments and genes, but different environments, different supportive or protective factors and risk factors across development that's going to shape that probability. But yes, indeed, it is there. So if we look at prenatal smoking as one factor, we do see that it is associated with an increased risk of of, uh, of poor health outcomes, and that might partly be due to these epigenetic changes occurring in early life. One of the things we can really see from everything you've been telling so far is that there's many factors to take into consideration at so many levels, right, to disentangle the effects properly and also in the right way. What is your view on maybe your research at the moment and research in the field in general? What would you consider a groundbreaking finding in the field of epigenetics and childhood trauma? And what does it take for it to be a game changer? And what is the main challenge to tackle at the moment? Or one of yes. them. I mean, you just pick your your, your I current ha- I favorite. Have, or... so I have many favorites. I'll say it first like this. Okay. So um, I'll just say whatever comes to my mind, but it doesn't mean that other <laughs> findings are not groundbreaking. So it's a difficult question, to be honest, because I think the field as a whole is really groundbreaking. Because as I said, it provides a a tool at a molecular level to look at how genes and environments come together. That is groundbreaking to begin with, because it it allows us to have a starting point towards that integrative perspective. So that's very interesting. I think originally, there was a lot of interest in epigenetics as a mechanism through which things such as childhood trauma and other experiences affect health. I must say that is still very much of interest, but it's also very, very difficult to establish, as I said, because we have to rely a lot on these observational studies where it's it's difficult to look at really mechanisms. But one area that I think is very exciting and important is actually the use of epigenetics as, um, as markers, as predictors. So towards early risk detection, risk prediction, these are things that we're really seeing huge developments. I must say, most of the developments at the moment have been in, in adulthood and in fields that are not yet mental health, although I hope that we're going to change that. So more at the moment applied to cancer and cardiovascular disorders and these kind of physical health outcomes. We're seeing that the rise in what we're calling methylation-based risk profiling or epigenetic-based risk profiling. And it's the idea that you might collect a blood sample from an individual and be able, by looking at epigenetics, to estimate a health profile. You can already estimate, as I mentioned, just based on epigenetics, 
specific patterns, you can estimate quite accurately. As I said, if someone is a smoker, you can estimate BMI, you can estimate all sorts of cardiometabolic factors. Even if you don't ask that person, you can estimate their health profile. And what we're finding that's very interesting is that these epigenetic scores can be better predictors of disease risk than the measures themselves. So for example, an epigenetic score of BMI seems to be a better predictor of future diabetes than if you measure BMI itself, because maybe it's getting at a more biological level. In oncology, there's huge developments. For example, recently, there's been data showing that in blood, you can actually look at epigenetic patterns that can be a better predictor of very early stages of different cancers. And you can detect that much earlier than current methods. So there's a lot of different applications of using epigenetics as a marker of early risk or even, you know, pre-symptomatic risk for different conditions. And I hope eventually to also be applied in the context of mental health and allowing us to detect early in development who might be at higher risk so that we can actually implement strategies early on to curb that risk for individuals to prevent them developing different mental illnesses, for example. Well, this is a great way to wrap up our conversation. I think so as well. Overall, bigger picture, multifactorial approach. It feels like we came to a natural conclusion. Thank you so much for answering all of our questions and discussing about your research with us, Charlotte. It was was really nice. Thank you so much for making all these complex topics and terms a lot more accessible and understandable. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you both. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. It's Melissa. This episode of At the Back of Your Mind was recorded on the 12th of January 2023, featuring our hosts Carolina and Juliet with special guest Charlotte Cecil. Be sure to visit inspiredmind.org forward slash at the back of your mind for more episodes, transcripts, social media and contact information. A big thank you to our editors Anushka Abel, Julia Lombardo and Melissa Coase and our editor-in-chief Professor Carmine Pariente for helping us bring this podcast to the air. And of course, thank you for listening. See you next time.